Well, good morning, Harvest. How y'all doing this morning? Good. I'm glad to be with you. My name's Kenan Vaughn. Excited to be uh, preaching out of God's Word this morning. We're going to be in Judges, if you want to head that way, starting off a brand new series in the book of Judges. I know it's been a um, tough, I would even say a traumatic week in ways, as Nick mentioned, for our city. And so just a word that um, we grieve uh, for the evil that has taken place. Uh, just, we know it happens all over the world, but sometimes it comes to roost uh, in our own backyard. And, and it uh, does a lot of things. We mourn and we grieve, and it's just so sad. And uh, we get angry, and, and, and a lot of times fear comes in. We find ourselves being afraid, sometimes irrationally afraid, looking over our shoulder every time we leave the house kind of a thing. And uh, just to remember in moments like this, that we do have a sovereign God who is faithful. Psalm 121 says, uh, we look to the hills. Where does our help come from? It comes from the Lord. Peter says, cast your anxieties onto him because he cares about you. And uh, remember that. We, this is the time we remember our, our weakness, uh, his strength. Uh, we spend time on our knees. We're praying for the healing of our city, praying for those who have lost loved ones. We're praying for unity in our city. Uh, we need the church to be the church. We need the church to give a picture of trusting in God to take even the most evil of man's purposes and use them eventually for good. And we need to be resilient. The church uh, stands in a day of evil because, uh, frankly, we know how the story ends. I've read ahead, you guys. And so we don't lose confidence in a dark day. We know that Satan's the prince of this world. He seeks to steal, kill, and destroy there's going to be evil until the Lord deals with it once and for all, and he will. And in the meantime, we're to be ambassadors. We're to stand in the gaps and shine the light of Christ in the darkness. And we don't do that in our own strength. We do it in the strength of the Lord. So just want to say a prayer here for, for us and for our community, but that we would really represent Christ and trust Christ well. Because there's a lot of people out there that have no idea where to turn right now. And turning to your own wisdom or what your neighbor says is not going to be sufficient. Turning to our governing authorities who we're so thankful for it is not ultimately the answer. It's got to be the Lord. Only the Lord can bring peace to your heart and peace to the city and, uh, and ultimately peace to the world. He will do that. He's promised. So let's just say a word of prayer here. Father, uh, I'm so thankful for how many promises you give us in your word that say again and again and again, do not be anxious, do not be afraid, do not be overwhelmed by fear. It's again and again because you as a sovereign God and we as your creation, you know that that's what our hearts and minds must be reminded of again and again. If we're going to live in a fallen world where the prince of darkness is on the loose, we, we're going to need to be reminded not to be afraid. You told it to Joshua, whose uh, name will be uh, on the tip of our tongues in today's sermon. It, don't be strong and courageous. Don't look to the right or the left. Look at my word. Look at me. Trust me. Stay with me. May we do that in a way that is humble, faithful in this day and in, in this just unique moment in the life of our community, which has been rocked by shootings and an abduction and a murder and other killings and an act of terrorism. Uh, it's been a dark week. And, uh, and yet our hope is not lost. Our hope is secure. May we be a people who um, show the world around us how to love how to trust, how to heal, and, uh, and may we hope in you, because in you our hope will never fail us. 
And uh, Lord, will produce in us godly character. So do that work in us. And Lord, bring forth good from the evil around us. Let us see glimpses that might be foretaste of your kingdom to come. And let us be faithful in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, we're going to be here in Judges. Really excited about this study. Um, I think I mentioned this to you last week. A, A tagline of Judges of sorts would be the last verse of the whole book that says um, there arose a generation who did what was right in their own eyes. And uh, I said then, I'll say it again, I think this book is incredibly relevant because we live in that day where um, our society is specifically, I'm talking about right here, America, 21st century, is doing what's right in his own eyes. That's a product of something that we're going to see in our text today. And, and that results in something we're going to see in our text today. Uh, the book of Judges, even though it was 3,000 years ago, is incredibly relevant to today. It teaches us about who God is, who we are. It illumines the necessity for the gospel, the beauty of the gospel. So I don't want you to think 3,000 years old, what could this possibly have for me? Everything, okay? The Bible interprets history. This, this, this story we're living in is God's story, it's a, it's a beautiful story of redemption. We're a part of it. We're a chapter in it. This is a chapter in the same story that gives context, that explains, that interprets what you and I are experiencing today. Okay, so this is incredibly relevant. Now, some of you that are particularly keen, um, nothing gets past you kind of people, you may have noticed there's a whiteboard behind me. I would say this. Uh, that, this is the first time we've ever done this. It did okay in the first service, so we're going to try it again. Um, we're gonna, when I write on here, we're going to try to put that on the screens. Um, there's a reason for that. I'm going to teach a little bit on the front end, maybe these first 10, 15 minutes. I'm going to teach before I get to the preaching because I, uh, I think that we need context. We need to understand what's precisely happening in the moment we're going to preach to really get the weight of it to really see the gospel clearly through it, which I, I believe if I do my job faithfully, we will. Um, I tried to, to do this. I was sitting at a, a baseball game yesterday with a buddy, and he said, what are you preaching on tomorrow? I said, Adoni Bezek. He said, Adoni what? I said, you know, judges. He's like, no, man, I, don't, I have no idea what you're talking about. And so I started to try to kind of explain. I was just using my hands. And he was like, you better find some other way. And so, hence the whiteboard, okay? I said, this is just not working. It's just kind of too much, and, and uh, I can only do so much. So, I, I'm going to try to draw the story a little bit just to, just to help us go, okay, I see it, I get it, and to get us into the context of the story where we'll pick it up in Judges 1. So, first, we're going to read God's Word, whoever's able, if you could stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word, and then I'll try to back us up and catch us up. All right, Judges chapter 1, verse 1 through 7, the very word of God. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. And they found Adoni Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adoni Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. 
And Adodi Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem, and he died there. This is the word of God for the people of God. And the people of God said, praise be to God. You may be seated. So, Father, thank you for this uh, few moments this morning. We just be still under the weight and authority of your word. Please speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Clarify what's critical for us to know about you, about your promises that prevail, about your character, uh, which is righteous and altogether faithful, and about our need and the way that you have met that need in, um, in a provision, in a lamb slain for our sin. And so uh, illumine the gospel this morning through this Old Testament text. As I preach, I must decrease, Lord Jesus, you must increase. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so um, a lot of places I could begin, and again, I didn't know I was doing this till yesterday afternoon, but uh, just, just quickly, this is, uh, this is Asia Minor, Biblical Times, this is not drawn to scale, okay? All right, so uh, this, is, this is what's going on. We got the Tigers and the Euphrates right over here. Okay, there it is. So the Middle East, this is the Mediterranean Sea, and uh, we got the Red Sea, and we got Egypt over here, and Sea of Galilee, G, the Dead Sea, all right? And in Genesis chapter 12, now, super quick runway to 12, so I don't get too deep in the weeds. God's created man in his own image. He's given them a command uh, by which they might know him and fellowship him and enjoy him. Don't eat from the forbidden fruit. Satan, the serpent, the fallen one, Lucifer, comes in the form of a serpent. He tempts uh, Eve eats of the apple. Adam standing passively by. Sin enters, shatters the relationship. The fellowship is broken. But God says in that moment, Genesis 3, uh, all is lost, the wages of sin are going to be death, but all is not lost because I'm going to bring a, a singular male, one day a redeemer. You, the enemy, Satan, you'll bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. Uh, I say this is true. I, one of my sons has prayed since he was a little boy. Thank you, Lord, that you will crush the head of Satan. And it, I'm always like, amen. All right, Old Testament theologian. Genesis 3. It's going to happen. Uh, it has happened in the resurrection, but it will ultimately happen uh, once and for all when Christ returns. Now, that promise goes forth. Look, when we make promises to each other, I know there's always this kind of, hey, do we, is that going to happen? We're not sure. It depends on the trustworthiness of the person making the promise. Sometimes we've got to wait and see or we determine by the care. It's not like that with God. When God makes a promise, it's as good as done. Every single thing he promises, and that'll be a lot of what we see today, uh, comes to fruition. Whether we understand it in real time or not, it, per, it, it signifies, it displays God's faithfulness in and of itself. Okay, he's going to make promises that display his justice and his mercy, which are ultimately the, play in the display in the cross. I mean, my goodness, the justice of God, the wrath poured out on our sin, and the mercy of God that he would deliver his own son to be slaughtered for our sin. Well, Lest we get ahead of ourselves, God is true to his promises. He says in Genesis 3, a redeemer's coming. Well, wickedness spread so great among men uh, outside of the garden uh, as a result of sin that God is, is going to cleanse the earth of the sin. He does through the, the, the waters of a flood. And yet, because of his promise, he spares a family, Noah. Through him will come the redeemer, the, the seed, the promised one. So Shem, Ham, and Japheth, his sons, 
uh, uh, multiply into becoming the nations. In Genesis 11, they gather together, they form a tower into the heavens, Tower of, of, of Babel, gateway to God. God makes it Babel confusion. They want to be God, just like Adam and Eve in the garden. They want to put themselves in place of God. That was the enemy's lie. You can be like God if you eat of the apple. It's our problem too. We want to be God. Hard to submit to a God who's not us and submit our will to his. That's the struggle with our flesh and with our pride. So they struggle. God confuses their language, disperses them because there's no evil they cannot do, it says, if they're gathered together. And then in chapter 12, what's God going to do? We have nations scattered. We have a promise that's been made. And so God calls a man, Abram, out of Ur of the Chaldeans. This is somewhere over here. And he brings Abram over to a land. This is what we know as present-day Israel. And he brings him to this land, and he plops him down, and he says, Abram, I'm going to make you a promise. Again, God makes a promise based on his faithfulness, not ours. He says, I'm going to give you this land. It'll be your land. Okay? Uh, um, not only am I going to give you land, I'm going to make your descendants like the stars of the sky. Now, that, that, that promise was unique because Abraham's in his mid-80s. His wife had a good laugh at that. Now, we're going to see that Abraham, once he got over it in Genesis 15, he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was declared righteous because he believed the promise of God. Abram became Abraham and was saved by grace through faith. God chose him, he believed. Not because he did anything. In fact, the covenant of circumcision follows um, the promise, that, uh, the declaration of his justification. So even in the Old Testament system of, of soteriology, faith precedes works. Okay, so here we got a man. God's made him a promise. Land, seed, and through your seed, I'm going to bring the one who's going to bless the nations. The Messiah is going to come through you, Abram. All right. Well, we have a man in a land with a promise of uh, uh, generations multiplying people that will come from him, and one from his line, a Jew, who will bless all the nations. The Messiah will be a Jewish Messiah. In that day, by the way, he puts uh, Abram to sleep, and in his sleep, he gives him a vision, and the vision is of uh, that he himself passing through the parts long story short, he's saying this, this promise I make is not going to be fulfilled because of anything you do. It's, it's going to be my character that I've done it for you. And he says to him then, right there in Genesis 15, he says, your descendants will be sojourners. They'll be taken captive in a land and oppressed. We know that's coming in Egypt. And he says, but I will ultimately bring them out. They'll plunder that nation. They'll come out. I'll bring them back to this place. And when I do, I'll deal with the ripening sin of the Amorites who represent the Canaanites, the people that fill, they were the largest group of people within the land of Canaan. So God's promised to do all that, Genesis 15, to Abraham. Now, we know the uh, promise of God, uh, God reiterates it to Abraham's son Isaac, and, and through Isaac to Jacob, uh, and then through Jacob to one of Jacob's sons. Uh, Jacob's going to have 12 sons. Uh, one of those sons is a favored son. We're told in the Bible not to have favorite sons. Uh, uh, Jacob did, and that was a problem. His brothers became jealous and they were jealous of Joseph. And so uh, they had this idea. They said, let's kill him. And uh, one of them, Reuben, the firstborn, said, that, that seems a little harsh. Let's just sell him to the Ishmaelites. And so they sell him, and Joseph is taken down here to Egypt. Now, that's just Joseph. It's not all of Israel yet. God's made a promise that ultimately this is going to happen. We don't know how. Again, this is his story. 
and we see what plays out. They, of course, they're in real time. They would have no idea what's going on. But we see it. We get to look back and see God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. Joseph's in Egypt. By the way, he, gets, he lands in Potiphar's house. He is a, uh, a servant in that house, and he is faithful. Potiphar trusts him with everything. One day, Potiphar's wife falsely accuses Joseph of, of making a pass at her. He's falsely accused. He's thrown into prison for what he did not do. So here's Joseph, favored by his father. His brothers were jealous. They sold him into slavery. Every time he's faithful, something bad happens. In slavery, he's falsely accused and thrown into, uh, into, into prison from Potiphar's house. In prison, God gives him the ability to interpret dreams. He ministers to a cupbearer and a baker. They get restored. As they get restored, he says, hey, uh, can you tell Pharaoh don't forget about me down here? They go back to Pharaoh and they forget about him. Two years longer, he's just in jail. I, I, I've never experienced anything like this, but can you imagine just, I don't know how bad your circumstances are, but have you ever thought, God has totally abandoned me? He has forgotten me, obviously. I, I tried to honor him, and every time I try to honor him, things just get worse for me. If you've ever felt that way, see Joseph. Two years in prison, forgotten again, and he's there on a false accusation. And then one day, Pharaoh has a dream, can't figure it out. The cupbearer goes, oh my gosh, I forgot. There's this guy in prison, actually has a gift from the gods. He, he didn't understand yet, but uh, that he can interpret dreams. And, and uh, Pharaoh goes, bring him. Just like that, circumstances change. Joseph comes before Pharaoh. He interprets his dream, says there's going to be seven years of plenty, then seven years of want. You better prepare in the days of plenty for the days of want. Pharaoh says, unbelievable. You're God's man, you're my man. You be the administrator of the entire kingdom. And so he raises the second prominence over all of Egypt. And guess what? Seven years of plenty, then the famine. And when the famine comes, God's going to drive now all of his people who, guess who they're led by? His brothers. And God's going to drive them to him for the provision they need. They need bread. And they got to go to the long lost forsaken brother that they betrayed and turned over to dead, who's risen to the elevation of a savior in his own land. And they got to now come to the one who they turned over to be killed, who's become a savior in a foreign land so they can find the bread of life in him. I hope, I hope y'all just heard what I said. That's a, that's through Joseph. You see a shadow of Christ that Jesus betrayed and turned over for dead by his brothers is, uh, uh, rises to be the administrator of all the blessing of God. He's the savior to the Gentiles and the Jew must come for the bread of life promised to him to the Jewish Messiah who's now the king of the Gentiles and of course the world. And so this is Joseph and now God's people find a home. There's God, beautiful reconciliation story, Joseph and his, and, and, uh, and his brothers and the Jews, and they settle here in Egypt. Now, this is not their land. It's where they settle in the time of famine, and uh, they populate there, and everything is seemingly good until Genesis ends, Joseph dies, and a Pharaoh comes to power who does not know Joseph and does not know his God, doesn't care. All he knows is that the Israelites have grown really numerous, and he's worried that, man, if anything, if they want to rebel against us, they'd cause a problem. So he enslaves them. And for the next 400 years, Again, it's a long time to wonder if God has forgotten his promises. 400 years, they're slaves in Egypt. And they're crying out to God, you've forgotten us. What happened to the promises you made to Abraham? This isn't our land, we're supposed to be somewhere else. And, uh, and God raises up a deliverer 
uh, in a time where King Herod is killing the, the firstborn of all of the Israelites uh, because of his fear uh, of, of prophecy, God takes one and he puts him in a papyrus basket, floats him down a croc-infested river, the Nile River, and wouldn't you know it, it says in the scripture, by happenstance, which we know is the province of God. Pharaoh's daughter uh, comes out, finds him, and before you know it, Moses, God's deliverer for his people, is raised in uh, Pharaoh's house. And so he raises up a deliverer, and just like God told Abraham he would do, he's going to bring judgment on this nation. He's going to squeeze them until they will free the Israelites. So he does that through the plagues, Exodus 7 through 12. And through the time of plagues, Again, Pharaoh relents and then his heart hardens and he relents and his hardens and finally in that 10th and final plague, the plague of the firstborn, the Passover, Exodus chapter 12, a great gospel chapter in your Bible. What God does is he says, okay, Israel, take, the, take a lamb, an innocent lamb and slaughter. We're gonna take the blood of the lamb, put it on the doorpost. I'm gonna send the angel of death through and here's what's gonna happen. Whoever is not covered by the blood of the innocent lamb will be killed. But anyone who trusts my promise and by faith does what I says and hides under the blood of an innocent lamb, they will be saved. God is calling a shot. He's pointing forward. Paul will call Jesus the ultimate Passover lamb, that those who trust the promise of God by grace who are hidden under the blood of Christ will be passed over in judgment. And through the Passover, God judges Egypt and Pharaoh says, get out of here. He drives them out and they take possessions from Egypt and they go. And God brings them out of Egypt and they cross the Red Sea, the power of God in the Old Testament seen through the, the passing through. God parts the waters, he brings Israel through, closes on the Egyptians, and he brings them to Mount Sinai where God right here will do something. He's going to give his people the law. He's going to say, here's what makes you different from all the other peoples of the land. You're about to go back in the land. It's going to be idolatry and immorality and evil beyond what you could ever imagine. You're to be other than. You're to be holy. You're to be distinct. You're my people. You represent my name. You're my ambassadors. You're to be a picture of my character in a place of, of wretchedness and evil. So don't make any other gods that look like me. Don't worship any other gods. Don't worship false gods. Don't kill each other. Don't lie. Don't steal. Uh, don't covet. He's going to give them the Ten Commandments. And then a whole lot of other commandments that basically say, you're to treat each other kindly. You're to love, Jesus wraps them all up, says, love your neighbor as yourself. They got 630 commands, but that's what they're saying. And it's taking care of the, uh, of the um, impoverished and, and, and weak of the society. And you just see the heart of God displayed through the book of the law given to them. But they're supposed to be so different. And then God tells them, now look. Well, he, you know what he follows Exodus with? Leviticus. You know why? Leviticus says, when you screw up, this is how you restore your relationship with me. You're going to have to know how to confess and repent often because you're going to fail. God already knows that. So he creates an entire system where on certain days you come and you sacrifice in certain ways that, that show God your, uh, you understand your sin and his righteousness and you long to be back in right relationship with him. And the entire Old, system and, uh, Old Testament system of sacrifice uh, is meant to point you to a final sacrifice, a fulfillment, a final scapegoat who will come and pay the price for your sin. We're anticipating Christ and the Messiah all the way through the Old Testament. And so um, God's telling his people how to enjoy him and have fellowship with him. When you and I fall into sin, you know what we need? We need to repent. We need to confess. Do we need to go to a temple and sacrifice a goat? Say no. No, because the final sacrifice has been made. Jesus, 
but we appeal to the blood of Christ and we rest under his blood, but we still confess and repent and know that there's enjoyment in obedience. God is such a faithful dad that when we disobey, he's, he does what a dad ought to do with his children that disobey. He chastens them to repentance. You can talk to your kids, chastening is no fun, but God's faithful. So there's a rich sweetness in the fellowship of obedience. He's teaching them that. He's putting training wheels on it and giving it to them through Leviticus. And then he takes them and he says in Numbers 11, okay, it's time. We skipped quite a bit, but it's time. And he brings them up to Kadesh Barnea, this town on the southern edge of the promised land in Numbers 11. And then in Numbers 13, he says, I got a spy from every tribe. It's time to bring you back into the land. I promised to your father Abraham. The spies go in, they spy it out. They come back, they say, the land is awesome. Flows with milk and honey. Never seen anything like it. It's the greatest, most uh, uh, amazing place. It's like a picture of Eden, okay? But here's the problem. The Canaanites are huge. They're militarily advanced. They're massive. We see the descendants of Anak. It's another sermon for another time, but there's giants over there. They even said this, we look like grasshoppers in their eyes really instills confidence in the nation. I used to coach football. That's not one you want to give in your halftime speech. Look, I know we look like grasshoppers in their eyes. Uh, Well, that's what they said. And sure enough, you know what the nation did? They wilted. Except for one guy. One guy stood up and go, okay, okay, wait, wait. I get it. They're big, they're strong. I have no idea how God's going to do it. But didn't he just free us from Egypt through plagues? Didn't he just bring us through the Red Sea? Has God ever lied? I think we ought to trust him. Golly, if you don't know about Caleb, wait till next week. Well, this was Caleb. This was Caleb. He stood up and Joshua stood with him. There's only two voices that said we should trust God. The other 10 spies said, we shouldn't do this. And God was uh, frustrated, but he's also disappointed. They're going to miss out on the blessing. God's still going to accomplish his purpose. He'll always find a remnant, but they're going to miss it. So God takes this generation of unfaithful and here's what they do. They wander. This is not their exact journey, but it's something like that. And they they wander in the wilderness for a generation, and God lets that generation die off. He says, all right, we're going to try again with the generation of orphans and see if they're willing to trust me. He's longing to to bless and and bring, but they're going to have to trust him. Same as you and me, by the way. And uh, so we get a generation full of 20-year-olds. Anybody 20 in here? Okay, yeah, a few 20-year-olds. That's a sophomore in college. Okay, God's going to take the promised land from the Canaanites with sophomores, all right? We should just stop and pray, but he's going to do it. That in alone is uh, apologetic of his power. So here we go, sophomores, he's going to take them, and he does through Edom and through Moab, and he gets them to Mount Nebo, where Moses gathers them together. I just picture a granddad and kids, I know they're 20, but he's bring, old Moses gathers the generation, and he gives them do it nomos, the second giving of the law, Deuteronomy. He's going to tell them what he told their parents in Exodus and Leviticus. He's going to re-give them the law. He's going to recount God's faithfulness. He's going to give them his, this is his best speech about you guys ought to trust God. And he's going to give the mantle according to God's will to Joshua to lead them into the land. And he tells Joshua, hey, Joshua, trust him. Trust God before the people, trust him. The key to victory is going to be to trust him. Don't look to the right, don't look to the left. You can be strong and courageous if you'll just trust the Lord. Joshua's, God's going to reiterate that to Joshua. Joshua's going to tell that to people. That's going to be their battle cry. And what some would call the greatest generation of all of Israel, they'll, this generation will do what their daddies wouldn't. They'll just trust God. And they cross 
the Jordan River, to a town called Jericho. I love the first battle where God says, okay, march around the city six days in a row. They're going, okay, okay, we'll do that. And then seven day, march around seven times, and then blow trumpets. Then what? And the walls are going to fall down. They're going to all start kill each other and I'll give you the city. What? That makes no sense. What do we got to do? You got to trust God. It's, it's such a ridiculous plan. It's, a, it's a, like, are y'all going to trust me or not? Is my arm too short to bring about victory over, the, over Jericho? They trust him. And God does it. And it's a story we celebrate around the dinner table with our children still to this day. God's faithfulness. And they're going, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. Uh, we don't have to do it like our dads thought. There was no need to be afraid. We should have trusted God all along. Now, one dude, one dude is a late, late bloomer. He gets, he, 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 God says, now do not take the things that have been sacrificed to idols and, and take them uh, because of their, you know, as riches for yourselves. Don't do that. Um, one guy does it. And so they're going to lose one battle because God's rooting out the evil from the camp. He's pruning them. Other than that, it's clean. They go 31 and one in the land. All right, that's pretty good. I mean, if you're Nick Saban, you're upset, but that's pretty good, okay? Watch this. They come across, defeat Ai. Then to the southern kingdoms, there's a coalition of kings that raise up against them. Joshua, through obedience to God, defeats them. Then the northern kingdom, they come against him. He goes and defeats them. All of a sudden, Israel has a national presence in the land. God's brought them back militarily. There's been conquest. They've settled the land. And now... Here's what God says, okay, when you get in the land, there's going to be rampant evil. It's like I told Abraham, to the fourth generation, 400 years, he says that evil will have, uh, uh, let me read it to you, I don't want to misquote this, and it's actually an important word. He says in 15, something about the great, okay, he says, the iniquity of the Amorites will be complete. It will have come to a ripeness, a fullness. I'll describe that when I get to the end of the message, a little bit of the grotesque nature of what was going on in Canaan and the evil there. But God has told his people, you can't coexist with evil. You can't wink at it. You can't, com- you can't compromise to fit in in the name of unity. You can't tolerate it. We're going to see part of the just nature of God and a foreshadowing what he will ultimately do with evil and how he deals with the Canaanites in the land. By the way, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna drive all the Canaanites out and kill most of them, men, women, children? Yes, there's been many a man studying his Bible that has been so troubled by this, they've left the faith. There are people today that say, God of the Old Testament must be a different God than God of the New Testament. That's a prevalent false theology that's out there. This is one of the toughest questions in the entire Bible. It just seems so ungodlike. where's the mercy of God? Like, like like, you know, I get it, but man, it just seems so unmerciful, unloving. It's just hard to stomach. This is one reason I did not just want to pick up the Bible in Judges 1 and roll right in, because that would have been more than a speed bump. I wanted us to see what's going on in context. I want to try to give an answer to that question before I'm done preaching this today in just a few minutes that we'll, we'll see in the loving kindness of God and consistent with his judgment, his just nature, and his mercy, why he does what he does. I hope that I can show you that. And so he says, you're gonna have to do that. You're gonna have to get rid of all evil and the evildoers in the land. And secondly, you're gonna have to raise your children in the Lord. Now, let me just tell you, let me just kind of steal my own thunder here. 
This generation who have trusted him in conquest, they're going to fail on both accounts. They're not going to rid the land of all the Canaanites. And they're not going to raise their children in the Lord. In the next few weeks, the scripture will tell us that. And what is the result? Is a generation arises that does what's right in their own eyes. Let me just tell you what, this is, a, this is called a law. It's not just a principle, it's a law. What's true in that generation is true in ours, is true in any generation. If you have the people of God who compromise morality and adjust theology to fit morality, if they'll tolerate evil and if they'll coexist with evil, if they don't take holiness seriously for whatever reason, they'll even wink at it, they'll even embrace it, they'll even celebrate it in the culture and they don't intentionally raise their children in the Lord, what you will always get is a generation arising that does what's right in their own eyes. That's what you get. This is a relevant word. It is what is happening in our society right before our eyes. It's what's happening in the church. We need to heed this warning from Scripture. Okay, are you with me? All right, we're ready for Judges 1, I hope. Here we go. That's where we are. National presence, we got to settle the land. Okay, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. Who is dead? Joshua. Joshua. Okay, that was a softball. Don't be scared to answer. Who is still alive? The Lord. All right, now, let me show you this real quick. Remember, this is not a story of Othniel or Samson or Deborah or Gibeon. This is not a myriad of stories of great heroes that we just want to take some practical things from God. This is a, this, the whole Bible is not a story of heroes. Go to the Jesus Story Bible. It's a story of one hero. It's a story of God and his redemptive purpose among his creation. And in that story are characters. Some of them become our heroes because of their usability, uh, relatability, that in their imperfection they cooperate and, were, and God used them to further his purposes. Many are warnings. They all have warnings within their lives because none of them are perfect except the one who will come is the fulfillment of the promise made in Genesis 3. But understand this. At the end of Genesis 1, I'm sorry, end of Genesis, Joseph died. A Pharaoh came up that didn't know God's people or God. It looked pretty bad. What are we can do without Joseph? He was God's man for God's time. He was the great reconciler of God's people and the foreign nation was respected. We're doomed. God raises a deliverer, Moses. Whew. Okay, and Moses is a pretty good one, by the way. Okay, wait a minute. Moses dies at the end of Deuteronomy. He led us out of the promised land. He interceded on behalf of the people time and time and time again. He went through the Red Sea. What do we do without Moses? Joshua chapter one. God raises up a man, Joshua. Okay. Okay, good, young, faithful stud. This is great. We're going to be okay for it. Okay, well, guess what? Joshua just died. Oh, no. What are we going to do? You get, as you read through your Old Testament, you start to go, we're okay when any man dies because the promise of God and his character remains true. This is not, none of these stories are meant to enamor us with mortal men. This is a biography of the deity, that's what your Bible is, of God. And we're to be enamored and amazed at who he is and what he's done on our behalf. So the hero is still alive. We're okay. Now, watch this. 
Uh, they inquire of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites? And you're probably thinking, well, I thought we already defeated the Canaanites. Well, at a national military level, we did. But there's still Canaanites all up in the land. And God has said, you've got to get rid of the Canaanites and their evil practices. And you've got to rid the entire land of them. And he said, don't leave anyone. All right, that's the troubling part, which I'm going to speak to specifically in just a moment. But they're going, okay, well, then who, who goes up in there first to do this at a tribal level? In verse 2, the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And he's going to say to Simeon, come with me. What is going on here? Why Judah? Is there any purpose in that? I love what I'm about to tell you. Uh, I wrestled with, do I go into this? Do I not go into this? But I chose yes. Uh, sometimes getting in the weeds, even if we only do it occasionally, because I want you to see the big story. I want you to understand it's one story. And the more you see the richness of what I'm about to show you here, man, the more you see from beginning to end one story and one picture of God's faithfulness that you can lean on and trust in. It's not just a disconnected, God sometimes seems in charge, other times he's uh, scurrying to cover his tracks or trying to figure something out. God's never biting his fingernails in the heavens, okay? He's, he's, he's okay with everything going on in us, around us, in our community this week. He's in charge. I want you to show you how, just how in charge he is. You can put a finger there and turn to Genesis 49. I think this is worth showing you, I hope so. At the very least, it's, in, it's explanatory and interesting. But it's going to show you the providence of God. And, and we're going to be here for a moment. So Genesis 49, Jacob is dying, and he's prophetically blessing his sons. So the 12 sons are going to get a blessing. He's going to prophesy over their lives. Listen to what he says in Genesis 49.3. He says, Reuben, you are my firstborn. Okay, so that means the rights of the firstborn are Reuben's. My might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Verse 4, unstable is water. Did you hear that? that and just, that's, what a great metaphor. I don't even think I need to explain that. Just unstable is water. You shall not have preeminence. That which is your birthright is not going to be yours. Why? You went up to your father's bed. You defiled it. Uh, okay, I'm not going to go into the details of, of all of these little points, but I will tell you, it's Genesis 35. It's just kind of mentioned as an afterthought. It's so perverse. It doesn't get much ink, but, but Reuben made a really per, uh, perverted, bad, fleshly sinful decision out of his pride. He did what a conquering pagan king would do when he conquered another king, another land. He would go into his concubines to establish his new reign. Reuben, wanting to establish his prominence among the brethren, uh, did that with Bilhah. With, um, by the way, this whole series is going to be tiptoeing on PG-13 here and there. Uh, I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to be as careful as I can. I want the children here hearing this, so I'm going to be careful. If something's confusing, just email me, we'll talk. But, uh, but there's, there's some stuff in here that you're like, okay, wow, that's pretty intense. And, uh, and, and it's okay. I, these people are perverse, just like you and I, when left to ourselves. If you've never had a perverted thought, I'd like to know you. And, and if you've never acted on one, you're a better man than me. And by the way, we're gonna, that's one thing we're going to see. Uh, uh, the, the faithfulness of God to his people it's not, his covenant faithfulness is not based on their faithfulness. It's based on his, his promise. Our righteous standing before God right now, and I'm so thankful for this, is not based upon my faithfulness. It's based upon the righteousness of Christ. In him is my confidence. Well, we see it in even the sons of Israel. Reuben, an incredibly perverse act, because in the wisdom of man, he thought that would be a good idea to establish. It was a horrible idea. And he's going to lose the, the birthright given to him because of it. God says that was evil. That was unstable as water. 
So you're disqualified from being the, the leader of my people and the one through whom the Messiah will come. Well, second-born Simeon, third-born's Levi. Look at these guys in verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. In their willingness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. These guys had a problem. Uh, their sister was taken and defiled, Dinah, in a, a, a Canaanite land of the Hivites by a prince named Shechem. Horrible, Genesis 34, horrible. The brothers are incensed as they should be. And so Simeon and Levi lead a plan. They make a plan. They tell this uh, uh, Hivite people that wants to do business with them. They said, you got to circumcise all the men in the entire land if you want to do business with us. So they do it. And while they are recovering, whole nation circumcised, you got to have a weekend off right there. When, when they're recovering, Simeon and Levi come in and they slaughter them. And God says, what you did was uh, you took vengeance into your own hands. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. You were bitter in your heart, and so they had done something awful and heinous, and you returned evil with evil. You did something awful and heinous. You were overwhelmed. You let anger have a foothold in your heart, and you acted in a cruel way. It's not yours to play God. It's mine. Okay, and so you guys are disqualified. Fourthborn, Judah. He says, now, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah's a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse Judah? This is why in Revelation, Jesus is called the lion of Judah. That's why C.S. Lewis in Chronicles of Narnia depicts Aslan as the ought, the great lion. Uh, and he says, the scepter, verse 10, shall not depart from Judah. The, remember the promise, the redeemer. The one who will be king of kings and lord of lords, the seed. He's going to come through Judah. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shechem comes to him. That word means until um, uh, he who comes, comes. So the line of Judah will secure the line of Messiah until Messiah comes and takes his rightful place on the throne and his kingdom will never end. Now, uh, later David from the family of Jesse in the tribe of Judah uh, the prophecy will come through Samuel. Messiah's coming through you. There'll be one who reigns on the Davidic kingdom, but David's reign will stop. When he comes, his reign will never end. And then Micah will say, it will be the town of Bethlehem that brings forth this shepherd king. And the whole Old Testament is anticipating the coming of the Messiah. He'll come through the line of Judah. Book of Judges, who goes up for us? God says, Judah. He's the leader. He's the one who's not disqualified himself, we all disqualify ourselves, but not in this egregious way where, God, where the consequence is as such, and he is going to be the one who goes up. And look what it says. Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. I love this. You want to talk about the mercy of God? Levi and Simeon weren't merely cut off as they deserved to be. I love it. You're going to see the just nature of God, there's consequence, and you're going to see his mercy at every turn in your Bible. Levi, remember the guy we talked about in Exodus that was put in the papyrus basket, floated down the river, ends up in the house of Pharaoh? He was a Levite, and he was chosen by God to stand between a, 
a, uh, a sinful people and a holy God and be a mediator. And you see the mediatorial office of Moses before God again and again. Exodus 32, when they've made the golden calves and God's calling them out of their sin, you know what God says? I'm sorry, you know what Moses says? He says, God, God's angry by the way. He says, I'm gonna wipe them out. I just, you just bring them out of the red, through the Red Sea and Sinai and give them all, and, they, and, the, and, and as Moses tarries on the mountain to receive the law from God, they turn their jewelry into golden calves and are worshiping and, and, um, and having uh, sexual, all kind of sexual immorality. Crazy. Moses says, God, I love these people. And I love you even more than them. I love your glory. I want your glory to be seen through them over the whole earth. God, if you kill them all, the Egyptians and all the pagan peoples will, they'll, they'll laugh. They'll say, Israel's God is no God. He could not accomplish his purpose. He has failed. And Moses said, I can't take that. And yet I know these people deserve judgment. So kill me in their place. That's a really good leader, by the way. You know what we see through Moses? A picture of an ultimate priest, a high priest, who will offer himself up as a sacrifice for the sin of the people. Well, Moses does it, and God has bestowed the priesthood to Moses and Aaron and the Levites. So they won't have an allotment in the land. By the way, can we get that uh, uh, slide up? I thought drawing this would be too messy, so I brought this one offline. Uh, There's the allotment of the tribes in the land. And, And by the way, there's no Levitic tribe. They're going to have cities in all the areas of all the tribes where they minister on behalf of the people. So God takes their curse and he makes it a blessing. You're going to be special, set apart to be a ministering priesthood to my people. Isn't that cool? Uh, where, where sin uh, increases, grace abounds, Romans 5. You see a picture of it right there. Well, what about Simeon? Notice where Simeon is. Isn't that interesting? He is within the boundaries of Judah. We just saw it right here. Judah's going to take, going up first. He's preeminent. He's the foundation of the land. He's like a trunk there on the tree of Israel. And uh, Simeon's not going to get his own land. He's going to get some space within the tribe of Judah because God said, I'm going to scatter you. Here's how God does this. This is pretty cool. He's merciful towards Simeon. Simeon is so weak and he's cursed that he must find salvation in the righteous one. He must go with the one who is strong. He must put his weakness in the one who is strong, who can protect him and save him. And, and, and Judah says, come with me. Be a part of me. And Simeon over the years is going to co-labor with Judah and assimilate into Judah to the extent that uh, if you fast forward 100 years, you're not going to even see. The map shown 100 years later is just Judah. You no longer see Simeon. And I hope you see the gospel that we are a people cursed and weak. And the invitation from the Lion of Judah is you come with me. You hide yourself in me. You who are weak, come and take refuge in I who am strong. Co-labor with me in my kingdom. Assimilate and become a part of me to where the world looks at you, all they see is me. Galatians 2.20 comes to mind. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You see these incredible pictures of the gospel. See, we might have missed that. Come with me. It's right there. Well, Simeon comes, they go, and they face the Canaanites, the Perizzites, 
and God gives them into their hands at Bezek. And then listen to this last word from Adoni Bezek, and I'm going to answer the question I told you I'd answer in closing. Adoni Bezek flees, they pursue him, they catch him, they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. You did that uh, because he, now he can't wield a weapon and he can't run. That's how you subdue a captive king. And he says, 70 kings have I done this to. And I love it, from the mouth of a pagan. And now God has repaid me. Does he have a problem with what God's done? <laughs> I'm sure he doesn't like it, but he knows it's justice. God's given me what I deserve. And that right there is a picture of what God's going to do in the land of Canaan. I got to just finish where I started. Back in Genesis 15, God said, the iniquity of the Amorites, who are the largest people, they represent all of Canaan, is going to get so big and so perverse, it's going to grow for so long and become so wicked and so harmful so ungodly, harmful to everyone there, that when it gets to this point, I will deal with it. Now, let me, just, let me just get you there. Is that not true in our day right now? We are in a culture that is becoming more and more perverse. Will God endure in patience forever? No. Again, you can read the end just like me. One day, he'll judge evil. What he did then is not any different than what he's going to do. He's going to judge evil once and for all, but he waits. Interestingly, he tarries. In fact, my question will be, why, uh, not why is he not merciful, but why is he so merciful? You can look around and go, what is God waiting on? You have that thought this week in our town quite a few times. Well, you know what Second Peter that describes when he's coming and when he'll judge the world by fire, you know what it says? God is not slow as some consider slowness. He's reading your thoughts. But he is long-suffering. He'll fulfill his promise, but he's long-suffering because he doesn't want anyone to perish. The Amorites were wicked in Abram's day. God's going to give them 400 years out of mercy. But the just nature of God to judge evil, will, we saw it at the flood. Through water. We saw it at Sodom and Gomorrah through hail and brimstone. We see it here through the people of God. Israel is the tool God uses to judge evil. And then we'll see it ultimately when Christ returns. Uh, in the big story, this is the justice and mercy of God being displayed. It's ultimately displayed on the cross, but it's always on display. God can't not be God. He's made a promise. He's fulfilling it. And yet he's long-suffering as he does. And he will judge evil. You know, what you know what Leviticus 18 says was happening in the land by now, by 400 years? It's a grotesque chapter. It says it wasn't just adultery. It was pedophilia. It was incest. It was sodomy. It was bestiality. It's a tough chapter to read. And God says, hey, to set apart a people in the land as holy, you can't, you can't coexist with this. We're going to cleanse the land and put a light right in the middle of the darkness. And that light is meant to pervade and it's meant to show a lost world who's living in that perversity. They're meant to look up and go, Israel is different. They're not 
they're not washed in wickedness. They're meant to, there's meant to be an attractiveness about their holiness that makes men want to be a part of them. And they come and ask, how do I be a part of what you have? And you say, you recognize there's one God. He is holy. And by way of grace through faith, you trust him and you're, you become a part of his people and part of his promise, which endures and is fulfilled in Christ. That was meant to be their witness to the world. Uh, I know it's sad. It's, always, it's sad when there's evil in a culture. It's sad when evil is when, when, when judged. And yet it's merciful and good at the same time. And so it was in their day. Revelation 14 says, there's a, it's, a, it's this incredible picture. I'll close with it. An angel cries out to God. He cries out to the one on the throne. And the angel says, this is Rev 14. This is right, when, this is right before Rev 19 when Jesus comes again. The angel says, swing your sickle. The grapes of the earth are ripe. And then the lamb slain doesn't budge. And then another angel cries out, swing your sickle. The grapes of the earth are ripe. Now your Bible says ripe, ripe, but if you look at it in the Greek, it's ripe, past ripe. Two different words. It's been ripe for a long time. But God is so patient, he's so kind, he's so merciful, he's so long-suffering that we go, has he forgotten his promise? No, it's past ripe, but the sickle will swing. And the justice will be seen in judgment and mercy when Christ returns. This day reminds us that day's coming. Don't lose hope, don't lose heart. Faithfully wait for the King of Kings and shine light into the darkness until he comes. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for a good word from Judges. It's a, it's a word that we could read right over and not see the, just the sovereignty of your plan at work and your mind and your heart and your character. And yet that's the, uh, we're in relationship with you through your son Jesus and your Holy Spirit alive in our hearts. We're a part of this very story. So thank you for your covenant faithfulness to your people. And that we live on this side of Christ's death and resurrection. The hope that is ours in Christ. He has come. The one they anticipate, he's come and he will come again. And we stake our claim on that truth. Let us live by it this day. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.